Hello, Nathan. Hello, Trevor. How you doing, mate? Yeah, doing all right, mate. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to yet another episode of We Need to Talk About Movies podcast. I thought you'd forgotten what the name of it was then. No, I thought I'd just pause for effect and then do it in a deep American voice. Well, it was very effective. Did you like that? Yeah, I, well, I thought it had great effect. Well, I hope so. Uh... <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to We Need to Talk About Movies podcast. And this week, we need to talk about the 1987 British comedy With Nail and I, or With Nail and I. That's how they pronounce it in the film, isn't it? With Nail. Was it a comedy? It's a comedy, yeah. Did you not find it funny? No, but it makes a lot more sense now you've said that. <laughs> oh, dear, Nafe. Dear old Nafe. So this is another listener's comedy. No, it isn't. So this is another... Li- <laughs> <laughs> this is another audible comedy. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> so this is another listener's comedy. It was sent in by our listener, Dean Harvey. He's emailed in to let us know why he chose this film. I'll read that out in a minute. But first of all, Nafe, shall we get on with some other correspondence? Let's have a look at some other correspondence. Okay. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we broadcast our podcast on that wonderful wonderful movie jaws of the revenge right yes do you recall that i do recall that that was the last one to go live we've got some comments on that gren kiapra says terribly terrible okay agreed yeah colin mclean says a laugh of a movie that is definitely a few beers and pizza with the brain switch to neutral film i'm glad they threw out the voodoo angle or it would have been even worse yeah say something well, I don't know. I mean, well, the only the thing that was going through my head then was just like, are these just names that you've made up and fake correspondence? Because we're not getting any. No, no, these are real. These are real. We get more each week. Johnny Waffle says, "Jaws one and two. <laughs> it's, it's true. These are real names. Sorry. I'm sure it's not his second. Name. That's his name on uh, YouTube. Sorry, sorry, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Jaws 1 and 2 were quality Jaws 3D at the cinema was something else but this was soon forgotten about pretty quickly awful uh, Scorpio Kitty says uh, it's true it's true names I've lost it I'm not laughing anymore Scorpio Kitty says this movie sounds so crappy that I should plan for a solo camp because listening to these podcasts in a tent out in the middle of nowhere late at night is perfect well I'm glad they serve some purpose yes <laughs> <laughs> Dale Hodgkinson said, The first time I saw this, I was hopeful with Michael Caine and Lance Guest on board. Despite their efforts, the film was a letdown. Would have been slightly more bearable with the original ending and not the cheesy explosion. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't think either ending would have saved the film. (laughs) There was not a lot to save this film, was there? Um, The Paybuck says, Hi. 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 And Dan Eady says... But Michael Caine. Yeah. Does, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mean anything in this context, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, I know. And then there's a bit of a debate goes on underneath. I put, the man has no integrity. Colin McLean says, didn't he do it for a paycheck, a holiday and a laugh? And Johnny Waffle says, he was only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. And then I said back to Colin, I said, yeah, he'd do all kinds of shit films for money. He must have needed it. Lol. That means laugh out loud. Right, yeah. Colin McLean then says, tax-free homes in the sun does cost a lot, especially when near posh golf courses. And then Bollock Naked, 1975, <laughs> real name, said, the money he made on this film bought his mother a house. Colin McLean says, nice one. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he could have made 
he could have bought his mum a house without the money from this film. That that sounds like it's a pretty weak justification. Yeah, he just fucking couldn't stop making money. He, I mean, how many films was he in through the eighties? He's probably in. He was probably in four films in nineteen eighty seven. I think that, you know he might not have integrity with when it comes to what films he was in, but <laughs> is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean. He's done all right out of it. I'd do the same thing if I was him. Yeah, but he's one of those actors that when someone says, oh, would you say Michael Caine's a good actor? I'd say sometimes. Yeah. There's a lot of crap that he's done, especially later in his career. He's great in Get Carter. He was great in films like Alfie, yeah. you know, back in his day. Zulu. I, uh, I've got to be honest, I loved him in The Muppets Christmas Carol. I don't know. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is quite good, but um, I've always thought he's a bit overrated. He's good when he's good, but half the time he could phone in his lines, you know? Yeah. But i got to be honest, by the end of Jaws 3, you've pretty much had enough of him, haven't you? He wasn't in Jaws 3. Jaws the Revenge. George the Revenge. Yeah, Jaws the Revenge. Yeah, George. Uh, anyway, that was all that was said about Jaws the Revenge. Then we've had an email. Fuck off. Would you like to hear it? Have we? <laughs> we have. Yeah. Um, Ollie Parry Jones has emailed and said, Hi, Trevor Nafe. This week, I watched Split, a film about a man with multiple personality disorder. Yeah, this is M. Nye Shamahangmaling, I don't know, isn't it? That's right, yeah. So I was interested to see how that would pan out on film. It's also directed by M. Night Shamalan. 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 M. Night. M. Night. M. Shamalan. Of course, he makes his cameo, and there's a supernatural edge to this one. I enjoyed seeing the different personalities portrayed by James McAvoy and the shifting mood between each one, but it wasn't until the very end that I realised it's connected to the other M. Night Shyamalan films, which was a good surprise. Um, you've mentioned that in our um, Sixth Sense. Yeah. Because so I never realised that was the, this part of that trilogy as well, but you mentioned it back then. Yeah, there's three films, isn't there? There's Unbreakable, Split and Glass, isn't there? Mm. And um, I think Glass is the conclusion, isn't it? It could be. I don't know. I've not watched them. but I, I can remember seeing a trailer where Bruce Willis, James McAvoy and Samuel Jackson are all... It looks like they're all undergoing some sort of group therapy. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it looked interesting, but... Uh, i just not a fan of M. Night... No, 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 no. Films, Yeah, I, I feel the same. I don't, I don't race out to watch his films, but quite interested to watch this trilogy. Uh, so I haven't got anything else to say about that. But at this time of the evening, I always ask you a question, don't I, Nath? You do. And this week they are white with blue polka dots. That's weird, because uh, I always ask him, what are your testicles looking like today? <laughs> so that's a really weird answer. I think it's something to do with the heat, mate. Uh, it must be heat it's the, it's the only explanation for it. Yeah, they've gone really pasty <laughs> with these weird blue dots, which looks like it's where the hairs are supposed to be. Um, no. In all seriousness, <laughs> the question is, I always ask you, Nate, have you watched any films this week? I have watched films this week. Have you? And, um, yeah, I watched a good one. I know I, I, know oh. I watched a good one, and oh. I know I watched one that you rate. Oh. In actual fact, I watched one that you rate that you told me about that I didn't know existed until you told me about it, and I think you told me about it, possibly, in our first ever podcast. Okay, okay. 
What is it? American Graffiti. That is a great film, yeah. It is a good film, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Written and directed by George Star Wars Lucas. Is that his middle name? Is that where he came up with the name for the, for <laughs> the think, film franchise? I think it is, yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Based on his days driving up and down in uh, cars with his mates. Great film, isn't it? Yeah. Richard I, Dreyfuss, Ron Howard. Yeah, there's no dull spot in the film. And I love the way all of the different storylines of the different characters sort of cross paths and separate and sort of come back together at the end, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was a great film. Yeah, it was. It just follows them through the night, doesn't it? It's just a really, like, a meandering story and just, yeah, it works really well, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, and it just, it seemed to pass in no time. And that's obviously, you know, that's a good sign of enjoying the film. It certainly is. Um, I don't think I've actually watched a film this week, Nath. I think I've been that busy. Every spare minute of my time that I've been at home, I've been doing something. So I've got nothing to add to this conversation tonight. Oh. oh. I had a night on Saturday night, actually, where I could have watched a film and I just sat Flicking through Netflix, flicking through Amazon Prime, flicking through Disney Plus, going through my DVD collection, not knowing what the hell to do, you know, one of them nights. So in the end, I just watched all the special features of Withnail and I. So that was 10 minutes done. What did you do for the rest of it? Oh, that was a whole evening. There's like all the documentaries and I watched the uh, audio commentaries. Good fun. Okay. So on that note, shall we get on with our Withnail and I? Yeah, let's talk about with Dale. Okay, well, first of all, I've got an email from Dean Harvey. Okay. Which he sent in, Hi, Trevor Nath. With Nail and I is my choice. Why? Simply because it takes me back to some very fond memories and friends. We used to try and play a drinking game in line with the film. You drink what they drink when they drink. I can imagine that's horrendous. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to have quite a co- collection of alcoholic beverages available at that point as well yeah at the ready yeah wow because uh later on they get like they're straight into the uh quadruple whiskeys <laughs> aren't they i don't think i wouldn't even have a whiskey can't stand stuff and then he carries on to say on reflection it probably made the film better than it actually was but even watching it back sober many years later the nostalgia is fantastic some great acting and one of my favorite one-liners in the film to look out for Monty, you utter cunt. <laughs> it's actually you terrible cunt. Yeah. Monty, you terrible cunt. <laughs> I, I, that actually shocked me, uh, the use of that word in this film. <laughs> I've got to be honest with you, because I was not expecting it, because it was only the other week I was saying to you that it's sort of uh, in that, the ge- in Gentleman, is it? Yeah. Uh, about, it was used a lot. Yeah, it's gratuitous use in the film Gentleman. And it's just, wow, by the end of the film, it has no shock value. It's just like, oh, it feels like you're just saying it for the sake of it. Now it doesn't feel like it fits. But in this, and bearing in mind this is 1987, I was just like, wow. Okay. <laughs> I almost had to rewind it. I was like, no, I didn't just, didn't just hear that, did I? He says, uh, it never fails to make me laugh. Then he says, keep the fantastic podcast going. I really do enjoy listening and have watched some films based on your podcast that I never would have dreamt of watching before. I'm still to find the time and energy to watch Rubber, though. <laughs> Cheers, guys. All the best, Dean. Well, thank you, Dean, for writing in. And thank you for suggesting this. It's a great film. Well, I'm not trying to bias Nafe's opinion here, sorry. But myself, it was a film that I used to watch with friends at college. we never done the drinking game, but... We used to smoke quite a bit, <laughs> so it was just a great film to watch. 
So, Nath, you've never seen this film before, have you? No, no, I'd never heard of it before. And I've got to be honest, I quite like uh, Richard E. Grant in some of the roles that I've seen him in. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm quite excited or, you know, definitely intrigued to see how this is going to go. And it, uh, well, I didn't know what to expect going in. I didn't even read anything about it. I didn't know what the film was about other than a brief memory of what you were telling me about two wasted actors. Yeah. So, uh yeah, it was definitely um, an eye-opener. Yeah, this is their first... Is is Richard E. Grant's first film, I think, as well, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah, I think he might have done something on TV or something. Nothing groundbreaking, but, you know, it's his first film. And it right in the starring role. And just fantastic, isn't it? Isn't he? Yeah. From the minute he's on the screen, he's just a fantastic drunk. And it's brilliant how he keeps sort of uh, folding into some sort of you know clearly classically trained actor uh you know and he's sort of ranting on with his monologues and sort of you know just trying to express himself in a way that you would expect an actor in the 60s to express himself you know but adding with it the the substance abuse and the drunkness and (laughs) just his general appearance and everything it was it just i was just brilliant it's really good. Yeah, he's the greatest actor that never was, isn't he? You know, he's <laughs> never had a chance because of how he was. Yeah. It's actually based, the writer and director, Bruce Robinson, it's actually based on his own experiences. It's actually based on... Right. He is the I character, played in the film by Paul McGann. Yeah. It's called Marwood, but they never call him Marwood. But his name is Marwood in the script. And Richard E. Grant's character, Wivnall, was based on a friend of his called Vivian. And they lived together in a, well, much the same sort of abode. A complete dive, an absolute mess of a, it's almost a squat, isn't it? Oh my God, it's vile. And the scene where they're contemplating tackling the dishes was just hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I have been in houses like that. (laughs) <laughs> when uh, my friends went to university you know, and they went moved to Bristol and I went and spent a week with one of my mates up there. This was their house. Just crap everywhere and the kitchen, you, you know, you couldn't wash up anything. You had to just find some sort of receptacle if you wanted to drink. Yeah. Like in this, he's, he's drinking coffee out of the bowl. No, that was just brilliant. <laughs> drinking coffee with a bowl and spoon. And uh, Richard E. Grant's like, you've got soup. Why haven't I got soup? That whole opening scene is just great where, like, it starts off with um, Paul McGann just having a complete breakdown, isn't he? He's having an anxiety attack listening to his record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he starts freaking out and then he has to go to the the cafe, have a cup of tea, calm down. Oh, that woman eating that egg sandwich. Yeah, just after he... Just the egg sandwich from start to finish when it comes out of the frying pan, smothered in grease. Oh, they're all frying in that... Pool of grease, aren't they? Oh, and it just goes straight in the bread and she just drops it over with that woman. Anyone in their right mind would complain about that as a sandwich in a cafe, but it just seems to get accepted. This is old greasy spoons, mate, isn't it? It's old oh. greasy spoons. But you, uh, he's reading about a sex change. I had to become a woman. And then he looks up at that woman and she <laughs> eats that egg sandwich and it spews out. It's like, it's gross. <laughs> you know, when you're thinking of a storyline for a film, 
you have a start, a middle and an end. You know, you have your introduction to the characters and then they become aware of something. Something needs to change, uh, you know, and then it goes towards the end. It's, you know, a classic storyline. Yeah. But they set the scene so quickly in this, in the introduction with the state of the flat and where he's at that it's almost like within the first 10 minutes, the realisation of something having to change is boom, there, it's right there. It slaps you in the face, doesn't it? Yeah, that's it. There's, there's sort of hardly any introduction, almost. Yeah, they're at the end of their tether at this yeah. point, aren't they? They've been unemployed for ages and they're not healthy. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Richard E. Grant gets, gets back home and he's like, Right, rub yourself in Vicks. Is it Vicks? No, deep heat. And stand against the radiators to try and warm yourself up. Like, there's only one way that we're going to warm ourselves up. and We need alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> and then he, he drinks the lighter fluid. Because oh, there's God. no alcohol in the house. Yeah. And he's like, don't drink that. And he's like, oh, and I, what else have you got? You've got lighter fluid in your toolbox. He goes, no, I haven't. He goes... What about your antifreeze? You could never mix your drinks. <laughs> just, just all these lines just throughout, just creasing me up. But apparently that scene, they practiced it and the light fluid had water in it. And then when they'd done the take, the director had swapped it out for vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> so he tips vinegar in his, so he wanted a reaction when he swallowed it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he got a reaction. But then Richard E. Grant was actually sick on Paul McGann's feet at the end of the shot. <laughs> and he collapses on the floor. Oh, good. Uh, Richard E. Grant actually is teetotal. And even when he was filming this, he's allergic to alcohol and he never drinks. Right. But the director convinced him, stupidly probably, but to have one night where they got him completely inebriated. Just so he had that chemical sort of memory of it. Yeah, yeah. To, and I'll tell you, the, the film's... Imp- his, his performance in this... I always thought Dudley Moore was one of the greatest drunks on film in Arthur, followed by um, Jim Leahy. Probably Jim Leahy tops it these days out of Trailer Park. Boys, yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard E. Grant's there somewhere in between the two of them, I think. It's just great. Oh, mate. He's, um, have you seen the Hitman's Bodyguard? No. He's actually in that. Right. And he plays a uh, lawyer or someone of some description who is super paranoid that someone's yeah. trying to kill him and he hires Ryan Reynolds to be his bodyguard right at the start of the movie. And when Ryan Reynolds goes into his apartment, he's just got pills poured all over his desk and he's sort of on his knees next to it, just kind of scraping them along the desk into his mouth. And he's just a complete paranoid, twisted wreck, like, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> it's, uh, this is like, was, ah, oh, right. I see where he gets that character from. I think a lot of people sort of remember him from this character. Yeah. Not a bad character to play to kickstart your career, is it? No, <laughs> it's very, very memorable. If you've seen it, you're always going to remember him for it. Paul McGann, I've no, I can't think I've ever seen him in anything since. He must have been. I've seen his brother in stuff. His brother was in um, the, up, the Upper Hand. Alien 3? He was in Alien 3. Oh, he was in, he was in Alien 3. And so was uh, Danny, the bloke who plays Danny as well as in Alien 3. Right. Yeah, they're both in that. But uh, yeah, Danny, the drug dealer as well, is a great character, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he is brilliant. The way he speaks. Now, why do I recognise that? You recognise that character. They've yeah. used him in something else. The same actor playing the same character. See if you can think about it. 
Ozzy Osbourne made me sort out every coloured M M&M and M or something like that, isn't it? He wanted all the. Oh, is it Wayne's yeah. World? <laughs> yeah, Wayne's World yes. too. Yeah. Doesn't he play Dell yes. or something in that? That's exactly where I remember it from. <laughs> you know, it was only last week at work I was thinking that Wayne's World was going to be my next suggestion. Uh, cool. But anyway, I oh, mate, he was brilliant. The way he just rocks up and they're sort of desperately trying to get rid of him, and the way he's. Uh, <laughs> He's building up about his arsenal of drugs and then he's um, talking about his mate who's a professional toy designer and they're designing these dolls that are going to shit themselves. <laughs> and then he pulls that doll's head off and he pulls that pill out and he's just like, this is, oh, what is it? It's, oh, it's, it's almost like you're going to be really impressed, but it's got a value of two pounds. <laughs> but... I guess in 1967, that's a lot of money. Yeah, 1969. 1969, sorry. It's the the end of the 70s. I mean, that's basically the heart of the film, isn't it? At the end of the 60s. So yeah. The 60s are over. All the fun times are coming to an end, and they are slumming it. It's almost like they're flat. It's almost like bottom, and uh, Richard E. Grant is all... Almost gives a Rick Mail performance in some places, doesn't he? Do you know what? I was watching it, and I was thinking the young ones... Yeah. You know, yeah. but bottom is, yeah, it's much better because, uh, you know, the two characters and the flat, oh, my God, they're flat and bottom is disgusting. And the underpants that they wear. Yeah. Oh, my God, the <laughs> underpants that they yeah. wear. That is Rick Mayle. Exactly, team, yeah. So. Oh, my God. Oh, it was revolting. But they are. They're like a married couple in this, aren't they? Yeah. Coming to the end of their days. And you think basically. Paul McGann, you, th- you get the impression that he's struggling for some for something more, isn't he? You know, for a way out. And you just don't see that in Richard E. Grant's character at all, do you, in With Noel? No, Richard E. Grant is just, or With Noel, is too busy getting pissed to, like, really want to move, isn't he? You know? Yeah. And I think he's the one who's sort of in control, and that's what Paul McGann's got to get out of that control, hasn't he? He's got to take... Because Richard E. Grant's character, he's not... He's selfish... He's manipulative. Yeah. He's a coward. He's a weasel, isn't he? He's just a complete weaselly yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of character. And he just tries to front his way through life and situations, doesn't he? <laughs> Act his way through, doesn't he? Well, yeah, that's it. And there's like moments where he's talking to people and you can see, you know, he is a good actor. When that they're in that pub and... Marwood walks past that chap, that Irishman. Yeah. Ponce or something he says, didn't he? Yeah, some, something like that, wasn't it? And then he's in there and he's like, I think it pans out that he's been in the toilet for hours because he couldn't come back out, wasn't he? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> when he gets out, Richard E. Grant's like, I've been on the phone to Uncle Monty for like hours. Come on, we're going to the country. He's planned it all. Whereas he's only just, it looks like he's only gone in and out, but he's in there and like, and he's like, oh my God. The bloke's going to beat me up and what have I done to offend him? And then he reads on the wall, I fuck asses. He's like, what if he fucks asses? <laughs> <laughs> really paranoid. Proper sketch and then, uh, Yeah, as soon as uh, he comes over to Richard E. Grant, and what is it Richard E. Grant says? So it like, I have a wife or my wife is having a baby. I have a condition. <laughs> I have a heart condition. If you hit me, I'll die and that'll be on your hands. <laughs> yeah. Trying everything, isn't he? Yeah. Hamming it up. Yeah, that's it. And then he just sends Marwood to the, you know, look, it's obvious you want to take this out with my friend. Why don't you and him go out and <laughs> just pushes him to the wolves all the time, doesn't he? Yeah. It's a real shit. 
he's a shit friend. Just th- throw him under the bus. That's fine. That'll do. See yeah. And no worse than with uh, Uncle Monty. Oh. It's, it's like the whole setup of that was he's basically, he gets the key to the, the, the holiday cottage up in the lakes. And as he's got it, he waves it. And he says, uh, free to those who can afford it, very expensive to those who can't. Yeah, that line. So basically, <laughs> by the time you get to the end of that <laughs> of the film, you realise that it's free to him because he can sort of afford it. Yeah, because he's from he's an Eton boy, isn't he? Like his uncle is from Eton as well. Yeah, and he's actually selling Marwood to his uncle. <laughs> he's like made out that he's uh, a a toilet. What was it? What's the- <laughs> A toilet trader. What was it? A toilet trader. <laughs> toilet trader. <laughs> oh my god! Because you know you get super strong hints all the way through that you'd have to be a blind man to miss about his uncle's persuasion. Yeah, which you know isn't a problem. And then uh, when when he turns up, you you first think that he's decided to do it all on his own accord, and then yeah, he just turned up. Yeah, it slowly <laughs> unfolds that. He's been led up the garden path, so to speak. <laughs> um, the director, Bruce Robinson, he has sort of said that he was in Franco Zeffirelli's, um, I think it was Romeo and Juliet. Right. We watched it at school, actually. We had to watch Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. But the director, Bruce, was a young guy. And like I say, Marwood is completely based on him. And the Uncle Monty advances is taken straight from the advances of Franco Zeffirelli to the director. And the director said that he used to be petrified when they was all on set in Italy. Yeah. And he would just go in his hotel room and just lock himself in there and just like, oh my God, I don't, you know, he's trying it on with me. And then one night he kicked the door in and turns up sat at the end of his bed in makeup, <laughs> blusher and rouge. Oh. And, like, <laughs> and he says that line, he says every line that I've put in here, it's straight from Franco Zeffirelli's mouth because I wanted him to know when he watched that film. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, shit, you know. <laughs> the cat's out the bag. <laughs> um, now, you know, with the Me Too movement, he'd have been, uh, they'd have found other ways around sort of pursuing it. But back in those days, you had to use your ingenuity. <sighs> and <laughs> what is it? What is the line he says? It's like, um, are you a sponge or a stone? Is it- oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> Just like some people, uh, soak up oh i can't remember i can't remember how it goes but either way it was it was horrible is he basically asking if you're a giver or a taker is that what you were saying it's possibly possibly yeah yeah not very nice pretty intimidating to be honest with you right it's not in anything to do with their sexual orientation it's when anyone is behaving in such a way as an overpowering sexual predator it is really unpleasant. Yeah. And in, in, in the context of this film, because the way it's shot in that bedroom scene where McCann is basically naked and he's very frail looking and very small looking and Richard Griffiths is, as Monty's is quite a large yeah. sort of big character, isn't it? And you're sort of, from the way it's shot and the lighting, you're convinced that he would be able to overpower him and you see the fear uh, in McCann. <laughs> there's that one shot where Uncle Monty opens his, his gown and you see... Uh, Paul McGann just sort of looked down at 
what you can only imagine is like his his erection chasing him, his face just like <laughs> oh, it's completely horrified. <laughs> it cuts to that look on his face like oh my god he's coming at me with that yeah and then sort of uh he very quickly tries to avert the scenario by convincing monty that him and with nail are lovers yeah <laughs> and and that with nail won't admit to it and he's sort of twists and turns and wriggles and eventually works his way out of it by playing at the sympathies of Monty. Uh, and he, he does finally get away with it, but you can only imagine that he must have been seething yeah. afterwards. Well, he runs you know? into there, doesn't he? Wake up, you bastard! But it's also, you know, that's the, the trigger in the plot that's needed to drive him to the point where he's, to make that final decision of, right, okay, I need to get out of this toxic relationship. Well, yeah. Because it is it is a toxic relationship. Like you say, they are like an old married couple, aren't they? And I mean, the film, you know, a lot of people back in the day even were concerned that it's homophobic. But the director, could, you know, he says, I'm not homophobic. This is experience. And, you know, when he retells these stories now... He says he laughs about it. At the time, he wanted to cry about his whole life, about being in this situation where they had no money, where him and his friend used to go sifting through bins all around Camden Town, filling bin bags up with bottles just to take the bottles back to the off-licenses and get like as much money as they could to go and then buy more drink. And then yeah. to be in a situation where he was preyed upon by like a really powerful film director promised a great part in this film and then preyed upon him he says all he can do is look back and laugh because you know he got through it (laughs) and it's finding comedy it's a very british sensibility isn't it to find comedy in 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 the the darkest darkest places places. yeah and that's why i think the storyline works so well is because it is told from such a true life perspective. I mean, I wasn't aware of anything that were telling me that this, these were all real experiences, but the story tells as if it was real and it is very much believable. And you can imagine these things actually happening, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, that's what, what gave it that sort of edge, I think as a film, because, you know, you could easily set out to make this film and miss the mark. Couldn't you? Oh, you could. Yeah. And the director as well, in the audio commentaries, the director doesn't talk, but it's uh, the actor, it's Paul McGann and Ralph Brown, who plays Danny, are the two who do the commentary. Yeah. But they were saying that the director was very adamant that he didn't want it played as a comedy. Right. And if anyone was to laugh on set, he'd make the actors do it again. He's like, we're not going for the laughs. I want this to be realistic. I want the situation to be funny. I want it to be what they're putting themselves through, which is funny, because they were supposed to be real people just talking and reacting to things. And if they got the characters right, then the scenes and the comedy would work within the film. Yeah, yeah. But he didn't want it to be farcical, which was, to the producers, or to one of the producers, it was, they were panicking a bit when they was bringing back the dailies and they're like, none of this is funny. What, What are we watching here? This isn't, you know, this isn't funny. And they... On sort of day one, the director almost walked off set because the bloke was going, right, we need it more funny. Uh, Monty needs to be more like Kenneth Williams and all this, you know. And he's like, I've produced comedies in the past. This is how I want, this is how comedy should be. But the director was like, right, this is my vision and I know what's going to make, you know, it's going to be funny. And it did, you know, it's proven 
all these years on, it's one of those cult classics that so many people still love and quote today, you know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, one of the one of the producers, because it, it's handmade films, and one of the producers was, um, or the main guy who put the main money up to start handmade films was George Harrison from the Beatles. Right. Yes. And he set it up to make Monty Python and the Life of Brian. Right. Because basically, after the Holy Grail, everyone loved it, and everyone said, "Oh, if you make another film, you know, we're there." All these companies. We'll produce this. Yeah. And then it's like, right, we want to make a film about Jesus. <laughs> and suddenly everyone was like, no, nah, we're not, we're not making that. <laughs> you know, no one wanted to touch it because it's a controversial. One. Yeah. Basically, I think it was Eric Idle was at a party and George Harrison was there and he was talking to him and he said, what are you doing now? And Eric said, well, we've written a film called the life of Brian and talked him through it. And he said, but we can't get anyone to make it. And George Harrison was like, I, I'll produce it just because I really want to see it. <laughs> you know? so, no way. Yeah, I want to see that film. So, yeah, I'll pay for it. So he helped set up the funding. And then, yeah, they made several films. I don't think handmade films are going now, but, yeah, handmade films started from that. That's crazy. Yeah. Lovely bit bit of trivia for you there, folks. Do you like the old trivia? I've got a few bits of trivia for you, and I? Mate, I'm always fascinated by your trivia, Triv. Always. Oh, I know. I know. You said, Trev, your trivia's hanging out, mate. <laughs> but I never I never mind. Well, he's got his trivia hanging out. <laughs> uh, I am more likely to point out when you're keeping your trivia to yourself. Come on, Trev, get your trivia out. <laughs> Come on. We're at a party, mate. Share it Come around. On. Get your trivia out. <laughs> Come on, Trev. Get it out, boy. <laughs> uh, another interesting bit of trivia there. Do you want another bit of trivia? Go on, mate. Chris Evans bought with Nails Coat. For £8,000-ish. What? Just yeah. because it's a film prop? Or because he really liked the coat? Probably the film prop. Probably just to say, I've got Chris Nail's coat. Man, it looked disgusting, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it did. I shouldn't oh. imagine he ever wore it. <laughs> what What people do with money, it's crazy, isn't it? Fair enough. He's got the money. Fucking let him, mate. Yeah, have it. I've got another fact for you. Go on. One more. One, One more. more. The song Light a Shade of Pale that plays in the opening credits. Yeah. Uh, King Curtis recorded that. And that very version that they're playing was the very last performance King Curtis did. And that night when he, they recorded that session, he was shot and killed in the car park. Fuck. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, it's, I've got to be honest. I feel an arsehole for saying it because someone died, but it's, it's not. It's not as uh, it's not as up there. I think you sort of definitely peaked with the George Harrison. Oh, yeah, George Harrison story. So, yeah, it is a peak, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Just uh, tuck your trivia back in, mate. <laughs> <laughs> down, boy, down. <laughs> I just, uh, the film just creases me up, though. There's so many great lines throughout it, isn't there? Like, where they go to the farm and they get there and it's a complete shit hole. First of all, they've driven all the way up there in the rain. It starts raining as they get there to the Lake District. And Marwood's driving and his windscreen wiper doesn't work and he's relying on a very pissed and half-asleep with nail to tell him what's in front of him. The car in general is just <laughs> just perfect choice for them. Yeah. 
it's definitely come from Richard E. Grant's family, isn't it? Or not his Richard E. Grant, but with Nail's side of the family. You know, yeah, it's come from it's, real it's, money. Yeah, and that's it. And it's the fact that it's a Jaguar and it's just like, it's just, it doesn't matter that it's a Jaguar. It's a pile of shit. And it's just <laughs> fucking falling apart, missing headlights, just rotten. You know what I mean? But yeah. it's, you know, in their head, you can imagine them like they're completely convinced it's something special because they're driving around in a Jaguar. <laughs> oh. I love it as well, the setup with the, uh, when Danny turns up and he's got that fairy liquid bottle. And you say, yeah. oh, you could have that or something. And you think, what the fuck's that? And then a bit later on, Richard E. Grant's talking through like, oh, there's instructions with this. We've got to find <laughs> some child's piss. Uh, <laughs> we basically fill this bottle with child's piss. When you get pulled over by the police, you refuse everything except for a urine test. And then you use this bottle and like you get away scot-free. And they set it up and then later on when he's drunk and they get pulled over, Marwood wakes up and like Richard E. Grant's driving. He's like, what are you doing? You, you can't even drive. And he's like, I'm making up time. And then the police pull him over and he's like, blow into this. No, I don't have to. My cousin's a QC or something. And then the policeman goes, get in the back of the van! <laughs> such a weird scream wasn't it <laughs> but then when he's uh in the police station and they're like the camera pans around them all doesn't it and it's like what's this joker doing and they open up the the screen and richard e grant's there like with this tube and the bloke pulls him over and there's fucking piss going everywhere <laughs> <laughs> just completely failed didn't work at all oh it's just brilliant <laughs> And you just think, oh, they're going to get off because of that. But no, everything goes wrong. It's great. It's good because the the storyline has a resolve as well. And McCann's, McCann's character, you, you know, you are willing him to sort of find a way out of this madness because, you know, you get the feeling that he is getting some sort of mental health issue as a result of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. My thumbs have gone weird. <laughs> My heart's beating like a fucked clock. <laughs> And Danny's back there, and he's and he's giving him that fucking joint, and they all start oh. spinning out. It's just Is fucking it the, the Camberwick carrot or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, it takes uh, at least twelve papers, and you see him sort of making it. It's impossible to make a, a joint with that many Rizzlers. It's impossible to make the Camberwick carrot with any lesser twelve Rizzlers. <laughs> yeah, it's just brilliant. I gotta be honest, his lines are the best. I, I think <laughs> after watching it, Danny is the best character in the whole film for me. Uh, I just loved him. I don't know. I mean, it's such an ensemble piece. It just, I don't know. I love them all. They're all just brilliant. Uncle Monty's brilliant. Richard E. Grant's brilliant. Paul McGann, you know, he just plays it great as well. But yeah, yeah, there is some great lines. And actually, Danny, in his strange way, he has all like the sort of the most important lines of the film that sort of summarise everything where he says about like London is a country coming down from its trip there's they're selling they're even selling hippie wigs in Woolworths he says <laughs> you know and it's like the 60s is done and he sort of points that out doesn't he you know yeah 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 and uh oh, I can't remember what he says about the hot air balloon about you know you're holding on to a rope and you've got to make a decision whether to let go and fall to the ground or to keep getting high, uh, but the question is, how long can you hold on for, or something like that? Yeah, I can't remember yeah. how it goes. And it's like the same when uh, 
Marwood, when they're smoking that joint, he starts freaking out and he's like, just sit down, chill out. Find a calm space. You need to find a calm space. And he's like, I need a, I need some downers or something. You can't remember what you asked for. And he's like, Yeah, he asked for value. That's right. He? I need some value. He goes, You want a downer? Now, why do you trust one drug and not another? Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's something that's very fucking relevant today, isn't it? You know what I mean? Because we're living in a country at the minute where people are being advised to have this vaccination. Yeah. Uh, against COVID. And so many people are up in arms. And I know, you know, I know loads of people that buy into this conspiracy theory and, oh, I'm not having that in me just because the government say I should. And then the amount of uncertified chemicals that they're putting in their bodies. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's it. A, it's all the same people know. who, like, the, the only people I know who wouldn't do it are the people who are still on drugs today. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they've yeah, been doing drugs it. all their fucking lives. And it's just like they've got no evidence or support of where the drugs that they're taking have come from or, or how clean they are or what they've been cut with or where it's been to get to them or, you know, even where they're getting it from because you know they're getting it from a second, third, fourth, fifth hand down from someone who had the clean stuff in the first place. Yeah. But they're quite happy to ram that in themselves to have a good time and not have a care in the world, like, you know. And then, of course... <laughs> You always hear of people dying taking recreational drugs all the time, but they yeah. ignore that and justify that however they must to make it acceptable. Yeah. But they'll fight the vaccine all the way to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, in the words of Danny, why, why trust one drug and not another? The Danny scenes, it's just great when Richard E. Glutz, I could match any drugs that you take. And that's the first time that Danny takes off his glasses and you just see his eyes are fucking black and beady. He's like, choose your words very carefully. <laughs> He's like, if I medicined you, you'd think a brain tumour was a birthday present. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's all sort of, it's not filmed in a slapstick sort of way. They are real characters going for a real situation. It is comedy. And there are scenes and experiences in there that a lot of people can relate to. I think so, yeah. When we was younger, and it's an awful thing, but we went through sort of the rave phase as films like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas came out. Yeah. And I remember my friends, like some of them, just thought that that's they were oh hunter hunter thompson. s thompson yeah they thought they were hunter s thompson a couple of my mates would always wear the hawaiian shirts and bought like the the hat and the glasses and one of them even had cigarette holder yeah, yeah. and I, I think watching this it's this is like the english alternative to Sit, fear, fear and loathing yeah and even the the font on the front cover of the dvd is identical to the font of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the novel and yeah. the film. Whether that's just something that happened later on, I don't know. I actually did read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I haven't actually, that I recall, seen the film the whole way through. And, uh, yeah, now you say that, yeah, I could definitely see it for sure. Well, yeah, because, I mean, in Fear and Loathing, he doesn't want to get out necessarily, but you've got Dr. Gonzo, who's just complete a complete animal isn't it yeah yeah but they're both as bad as each other you know whereas this you know marwood is although he's not a victim he's like you say he's the one who's torn and tormented with it you know and i think from when we was back in our rave days i was very similar i was enjoying it but at the same time it's like how long is this going to go on you know yeah yeah what's the end game yeah enough is enough 
but then the next weekend it'd all start again. But at least we sort of had jobs and we worked and we were responsible, you know. I never lost a job over it. I never was late with rent or anything like that, you know. I always ate food properly through the week. Just the weekends was <laughs> just... it. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's all things in moderation, isn't it? This is a very extreme example, isn't it? And I mean, Wivnall completely just uses everyone to get drunk he uses as we've said paul mcgann to get uncle monty there but once uncle monty's there paul mcgann wants to go because he see, sort of sees what's going on and he's got this fake grin the whole time <laughs> <laughs> he says my gum is aching i've forced the smile the whole time i've been here but wivnell is quite happy to just sit there take all the food take all the drink uh, <laughs> and i mean the the cottage feels like a different place once Uncle Monty turns up because at the point that he turns up, they think he's the poacher, don't they? Michael Elphick. Yeah, yeah. And that whole scene is hilarious where uh, Paul McGann, he's not that bothered. He's like, I'm going to bed. And Richard E. Grant has shitted himself. He's like, the poacher's going to come and kill us. I'm sleeping with you tonight. He's like, no, you're not sleeping with me. Get in your own bed. He's running around with that double barrel <laughs> shotgun, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. The first time he brings that shotgun out, he just puts it up to. The back of Paul McGann's head. <laughs> Is that when they're trying to cook the chicken? Oh, and then when you see Richard E. Grant barefoot in that river trying to shoot fish. It's just, oh, it's just... <laughs> With his coat all t- trussed up, trying not to get it wet. Oh, it's just genius. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> but that chicken, like the scene where they're like, oh, the farmer's here. And they run out to the farmer and uh, they chase him. And Richard E. Grant, none of them have bought wellies, so they got fertiliser sacks on their feet <laughs> as Wellington boots. Typical city folk. But then um, they go up to the farmer and Richard E. Grant says, Are you the farmer? We're here on holiday by mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And then they ask for food and for wood or whatever. And then the farmer comes down and he goes, I bought you a chicken. And then the next shot is them in the kitchen looking at this live chicken on the counter. Paul McGann's like, I can't. I I can't kill it. And Richard E. Grant's like, I could. I'm famished. (laughs) But apparently, yeah, the chicken that you see later on, the the, the corpse chicken that they sit yeah. on the brick in the oven, is the same chicken in the same day. They filmed the, the shots with the chicken in a day, and then that was down to the prop guy to sort of kill it and half pluck it. And <laughs> it's dark. And <laughs> so yeah, but think of it like that. But is, we do eat chicken. Yeah, it's, people do it every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, but, you know, when you do it on a film, it's some sort of, brutality or you know people are up in arms about it you're almost making uh, light of it i suppose but they just sit that chicken there <laughs> on the rock on the brick. yeah i've oh, i gotta be honest i've growing up on a farm i had a couple of mates around and we sort of caught a chicken and i showed him i showed him how to wring its neck and then we plucked it and then sort of you know i cut the tips of its wings off and its legs off and sort of gutted it and sort of uh, we started a fire and we were roasting it on a you know Raymere style spit yeah and honestly the look on some of their faces when I was gutting that chicken and it, you know there are some people that have got never seen it done before and you know when they see it for the first time it does turn them inside out yeah and you know the it's, sort of these these two trying to do it was hilarious well, that's it it's the difference between country folk and city folk isn't it yeah I remember you know growing up in the country and we used to drive around on country lanes and we came up to a car that was stuck on this little country lane and there was holiday makers in it and man and the woman was stood outside on the road 
and we were like, are you all right? And they're like, oh, we've hit, a, we've hit a pheasant. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. And there's this pheasant, like, it was fucked, flapping around on the road. And yeah. they got two kids in the back of the car lo- looking through. And my mate just goes up to him and goes, what's the matter? And they're like, we don't know what to do. And he goes, oh, yeah, I'll take care of it. And he picked the pheasant up and smashed its head over the bonnet of their car. <laughs> <laughs> and they was all just horrified. Like, you know, and the kids in the back were like, <gasps> and then he just slung it in the edge. He goes, there you go. <laughs> like, Carry on. <laughs> it wasn't, what they expected him to take it to the vet or so. It was fucked. It wasn't going to live. You know, all you can do is put it out of his misery. Yeah, but like the animal's been bred just so rich men can walk around and shoot it. I mean, just. <laughs> That's it. That's why we got pheasants here, isn't it? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, they're definitely not made out for the city. I mean, they fuck everything up when they get there, don't they? You know, they can't do anything. Oh, they're just smashing up all the furniture just to keep the fire going. <laughs> brilliant. And like when Monty turns up, like, I mean, there must be holes in the ceiling from discharging a shotgun inside. There's no furniture in the fucking kitchen because they burnt it all. Then he just, he doesn't bat an eyelid at it, does he? No. He gives them money to get the boots. No. He drives them into town, but he's like horrified. He's completely ashamed to be seen with them because they look like tramps. You didn't even shave this morning. You know, horrible. Because when they first go to see him, they clean themselves up, don't they? They've both had a bath and they've shaved and they're wearing a suit. Yeah. And it, with Nail and um, Monty are talking about Latin and then they say to Paul McGann, where did you school? And Richard E. Grant cuts in before he can tell him, like, oh, it's just at a grammar school. He's like, oh, he went to the other one. Like, yeah, oh, the, oh. the other place. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the other place. But later on as well, Richard E. Grant and Monty are, like, both talking Latin when they're playing the game and joking and... You could just see it's right over Paul McGann's head. And, but basically, Uncle Monty's given them the money to go and buy the boots. And they're like, fuck it, let's go and drink. <laughs> and they go to that bar, quadruple whiskeys, and <laughs> they get fucking shit-faced, don't they? But there's, there's, there's the thing, like £50 in 1967, in 1969 is a huge <laughs> amount of money. And he gave yeah. them £50 each to go and buy Wellington boots. It's just like, what the fuck kind of boots are you going to buy? Was it 50 yeah. or 20 each? I thought it was 20, but it might be 50. Well, yeah, something like it. Anyway, either way, it's a lot of money. They said it was a purple one, didn't they? But yeah. And, uh, yeah, so they just decide to go and get absolutely shit-faced. And that scene <laughs> in the cake store was just fucking hilarious. <laughs> in the little cafe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but at this silly. point, even Marwood's like, we're going to buy this place. We're millionaires and all this. And <laughs> then Monty turns up and they hop in the car. But Monty's like cross with them. But. I think he still thinks he's on for a lay, is the trouble, isn't he? Yeah, he's hunting Richard, <laughs> isn't he? doesn't he say, uh, oh, it's a really cringy line, isn't it, where he walks into Paul McGann in the kitchen. I'm preparing myself to forgive you, he says oh. to me. He goes, I'm releasing you from the vegetables to transfer you to the meat. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like earlier on as well when he's talking about the carrot. Oh, I don't like the flowers. The flowers are prostitutes to the bees. I like a carrot. <laughs> a firm carrot. It's just fucking He's just got weird. that cauliflower on his table, and it's like a centrepiece. It's just weird. Big fan of root vegetables. Yeah, all right, mate. It's really uncomfortable, isn't it? But at the end, even uh, Uncle Monty's character, even though he's like a bit of a predator... 
and he's trying his best to like, what is it? Oh, if you won't let me have it, then it will be burglary. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible, isn't it? It's it, not, it's not it even is, funny. Is it, it is horrible. But the thing is, is you kind of feel sorry for him in a way because with nails led him up to this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And even Marwood feels sorry for him when he reads the letter. Yeah. Oh, poor bloke. You know, he's heartbroken for him, isn't he? Because he's heartbroken. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they've lied to him. He wasn't privy to that portrayal until he needed to for necessity to get himself out of it. But that Richard E. Grant's character, just absolutely no morals. No, that's it. He just does whatever he has to to get what he wants. And that, you know, and he shows it time and time again through the film and then it just builds up to this one big betrayal for a weekend of way of fine dining, fine wine at someone else's expense. Yeah. You know, in more ways than one. And it's just, ah. Oh. But it's brilliant because it is the final nail in the coffin. Yeah, and then he gets the, uh, he gets that telegram arrives and he's called back. They want to see him again for some part. And Richard E. Grant's face just says it all, doesn't he, when he reads it. And like, oh, well done. But you can see he's like, fuck. I'm getting left behind again. Yeah, yeah, and but through no fault of anyone's but his own. Yeah, exactly, yeah. He's not helped himself, has he? The original ending in the screenplay had Withnail sort of seize his mate off, and it wasn't him giving that performance at the Wolves. Yeah. You know, where you think, well, he is a fucking good actor. It's a shame he's putting all his talents into the wrong, <laughs> wrong area. Yeah. But, the original scene was he fills up the double barrel shotgun with wine. Right. And then he drinks them back and then shoot, blows his head off. But it wasn't the true ending, even though the character he's based on did die. Right. But he died of throat cancer. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't a true ending to the story. It was like a fantastic, oh, great way to end it. But they didn't need that ending. And I don't think it did need that. No, ending. no, it ended perfectly. One's moving on and one just isn't. And it's like it, isn't it? You know, in you know the town where we all sort of hung around, you can still drive through there and see the same faces in the same places. Yeah, the ones that got left behind. Yeah, but they, again, it's down to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They've never tried hard enough, have they? No. I mean, let's face it. I mean, we're only a stone's throw away, but we got out. Yeah, and because you've got to want it hard enough, haven't you, to not want to be in there and you got to you know you look for different things in life to sort of focus on and to draw you away but for some people there's nothing is there yeah i think that i think the hardest thing though is is that realization and it's not always the case but a lot of the time there are certain infectious people that constantly want to drag you back yeah, where they're going and it, you have to come to that conclusion in your own time and that realisation. And it's often separation from those types of people that is the catalyst for getting you where you want to be. Yeah. And that's exactly, yeah. you know, what this film is about, isn't it? Yeah, recognising that and needing to get out and act, because... Yeah, act, you know, and, and the thing is, is opportunities, now, no matter how big or small, arise for people all the time but it's recognising that you need to seize that. Don't be afraid of it. Seize that opportunity yeah, and use it to get away from what's holding you back. Because with Nail, you know, even at the last time, you know, he's like, all right, we've got to get back. I've got to get back to London. And he's like, well, I can't go yet. I haven't finished my dinner. 
I'm still eating. <laughs> and then the next scene, you see him in the car with a napkin around his throat and eating his dinner on his lap while they're traveling. <laughs> He's still got his dinner with him. He's still got to be in control. He's still got to have his way, hasn't he? Yeah. But, you know, all he put Marwood through, setting him up and like, it was a tactical necessity, a calculated risk. <laughs> Just horrible. <laughs> Hard yeah. <as> shit. <laughs> but all in all, mate, not a bad little film. No, you enjoyed it. Oh, uh, yeah, I did and I didn't, mate. You know, I, I appreciated it. Yeah. Definitely. It's, um, it's not the sort of film that made me feel really uncomfortable. Well, that's something. You know? <laughs> Yeah, but it's, you know, it's, um, I don't know. I guess if I'd have watched it back in the day, I think I'd feel more more into it now. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think coming into it fresh uh, at sort of 37 years old in 2021, it doesn't have the same impact for me that it would no, have No, but be- then there's a lot of films like it, and I think the same with this, because when I first watched it, I was like, this is boring. I don't get it. It's not funny. Then a year or two later, watched it again, and I got it. And now every time yeah. I watch it, it's funnier and funnier. Right. On repeated viewings. You know, very much like the Coen Brothers films. A lot of their films you don't quite get first time. Some you think it's great, but it's not until the next time you watch it you pick up on all the nuances and all, like, you know, and it becomes funnier. And I think With Nail and I is definitely one of those films because the first time I watched it, I... I enjoyed it, but I didn't think it was as great as everyone made out. But having watched it several times since, because I mean, I don't know how many times I've watched it now, but each time I love it more and more. And this time, watching it for this, was probably the best time I ever watched it. I really, really loved it. Mate, it is, it is a funny film. I'm not denying the humour in the film, you know. It just, on a first viewing, it was a bit like, uh, you know, you know. Just, it does feel a slow, strange start when you first watch it, doesn't it? It takes some getting into. Yeah. It it starts in such a dark, dank, horrendous place. It, you're just, un, you know, not uncomfortable, but <laughs> you feel dirty from the very beginning, don't you? Oh, yeah. And that scene where they're like, there's something risen up from the dishes. <laughs> oh, my God. Fork it! Yeah. <laughs> What is it? It's matter. <laughs> kind of matter. It's like, oh, it's gross. It was foul, man. <laughs> well, Dean Harvey, I thoroughly enjoyed watching this again. A great recommendation. So, yeah, if you've got any recommendations for us out there, please email us wnmovietalk at gmail.com or you can put it under the pin post on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash we need to talk about movies podcast. Got the knife. Yes, they can. And we very much look forward to hearing from each and every one of you. Yes, that would be great if we could hear from you, wouldn't it? But, uh, Nathan. Trevor. Thanks ever so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And next week, it's one of my choices, which I still quite, not quite decided on. You on the fence? Oh, I'm on about seven fences. I'm all over the place, so it'll be a film anyway. I look forward to it, mate. Cool. So thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will see you all again next week. Chase! Chase! Chase!